Well, I think trust is the very fabric of who you are as an individual. It doesn't mean you're going to be right all the time. In fact, when you're in uncharted waters, you better know you're not going to be right all the time. But you've got to say, how do you instill the trust and the confidence? And then how do you get people comfortable with your strategy to deal with it? And then how do you go for it? No fear. Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, joined by the Dean of the Kelly School of Business, I.D. Kesner. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. So if this is your first time tuning in, we just want to welcome you to our Kelly family and just let you know that we are here for you. So if you're an organizational leader who's really wrestling, especially in this time of getting back into the economy, getting your business opened up, or just wanting to know how you can become a better leader, uh, maybe you would love to get some of our faculty research or expertise, or you just know of a great individual who's going to make an awesome guest for our show. Send us an email to ROIPod. That's R-O-I-P-O-D at I-E-P-U-I dot E-D-U. All right. Well, last week we started an awesome conversation going into a, a book called Connecting the Dots, where we were discovering these foundational leadership principles and how it's all going to build up to today. How are we as leaders going to get back into the economy? How are we going to get back into our teams? And how are we going to build a playbook that's going to allow us not just to come in surviving, but to come out on top, to become out a better organization and use what we've learned here during this COVID-19, take the principles and the great things that we've able to build and bring it into our organization. So today we are welcoming back John Chambers, former CEO of Cisco Networks, author of Connecting the Dots, Lessons for Leadership in a Startup World. He's also a Kelly School of Business MBA alum and current founder and CEO of JC2 Ventures. John, welcome back to the podcast. Matt, it'll be a lot of fun. Enjoyed the session last week. Adi, good to see you again as well. So we were talking a lot about these foundational principles. You know, the whole thesis of your book is is talking about this idea of disruption. And it's not necessarily the companies that did something wrong that fail or get disrupted. But a lot of times it's, it's the companies and the organizations and the mindset of doing the right thing for too long. And that was kind of our foundation that kind of sets the whole stage for being disrupted. You know, especially uh, nowadays, I mean, every in organization is being disrupted. Our economy ha- has been at a halt and we're beginning to start this re-entering phase. And you, in your book, have a specific chapter about when disaster strikes, how organizational leaders can lead and not just lead, but effectively lead their team through a crisis and come out better on the other side. And one thing, you know, before you even able to build a plan and build a playbook, uh, the foundational key is trust. Because if a team does not trust you as a leader, trust you as where we're going, trust the vision that you are presenting, then they're not going to follow you even if you have the greatest playbook of all time. So to start off, why must trust precede crisis management? Well, I think trust is the very fabric of who you are as an individual. I learned that from my parents, both doctors in West Virginia. And uh, uh, we always, as we talked last week, dealt with the world the way it is, not the way that you wish it was. Uh, Trust to me is about to the best of your ability, always delivering on your commitments. Sounds easy, hard to do. But in my entire business career, at least as far as I'm aware of, out of the literally hundreds of thousands of customers that I've met over 30 years, 
uh, I can always go back and interface to them, whether they're the top leaders of countries uh, or whether they're the CEO of a large company or an individual that I work with. So the fabric of a culture is built around trust and trust transference. And if you do that right, whether it's President Macron in France, who trusts me to be his French high tech ambassador because of the way we built that trust up over time, lecturing to MBA schools, if you will, in France, which are really fun when he was the minister of the uh, uh, economy or with uh, Prime Minister Modi in India, uh, where when he outlined the digital, digital vision of his country, over time, over a period of two years, now I've worked with him for five years, he trusts me to the best of my ability to always deliver, uh, to be very candid about what I think we're doing right, where we have to improve, and was kind enough when he talked to the top CEOs in America in his last visit to New York last fall, he basically said, I trust John, and if you have any issues, you can come to me directly, or you can go to John and he'll make it happen for you. That trust is so important fabric. It goes down to your employees trusting you to follow you. It doesn't mean you're going to be right all the time. In fact, when you're in uncharted waters, you better know you're not going to be right all the time. But you've got to say, how do you instill the trust and the confidence? And then how do you get people comfortable with your strategy to deal with it? And then how do you go for it? No fear. You know, once I move, I don't look back. Uh, if I find something dramatically different than I anticipated, I'll reconsider but as a whole, once I decide to cross the chasm and to go for it, we put the whole power of the company behind and we, we were unbelievably successful with that. That's what I'm trying to convey to my 18 startups that are part of my own portfolio and to literally the hundreds and hundreds of startups I talk to every month. In your book, you have this really pivotal incident in your early childhood when you almost drowned and your father gives you instructions when you were struggling. This is this is fascinating life lesson, and it, it certainly set the stage for your views on crisis management. I wonder if you would recount that amazing story and what you learned from it about crisis management. Well, it, it's several things that I've learned. The first thing is I've learned each of us will remember the story, not the key takeaway. We all know not to panic under pressure, but we all do. And so what happened at six years of age, I was fishing in Elk River in West Virginia. And my dad and I often fished together. Uh, he was teaching me how to do it. He put me at the best fishing location on a very fast, rapid area. And he said, John, you cannot get in too close to this because you get swept out in those rapids. It's very, very dangerous. And so he watched me fish there for about 15 or 20 minutes. Obviously, he thought I had it under control. He moved about 200 yards upstream. And then what did I do? I got too close to the edge and I fell in. And as I went under, I immediately realized I was in real trouble. I was getting tumbled off the rocks. Uh, I thought that I maybe was going to drown. And as I grasped for air and come up, I could hear my dad yelling, hold on to the pole, hold on to the fishing pole. Idy, it was an ugly fishing pole. Couldn't have cost five dollars, black, etc. But obviously, he was concerned about the fishing pole, so I wasn't going to drown. Each time I grasped for air and I was choking and sputtering, etc. I was a reasonably good swimmer competitively for a six-year-old, but I was six years old. And each time I came up, he was yelling, "Hold on to the pole!" And I can see him today running down the edge of the river, water going every which way as he came through. He finally got below me, swam out, pulled me over to the side, and brought me in. And much as dad did all of his life, he taught me afterwards what was the message. We sat down and he said, you know, it's so important when you find yourself being swept away in life, and this time it's the river, uh, that you don't fight against the current, that you cannot panic because that's how people die. 
And you've got to focus on just working your way over to the side, doing with the world the way it is and pulling it out. And then he did something I don't think he ever told my mom. <laughs> he took me back up to where I was and he had me jump in the river and get out on my own. Tremendous life lesson. About 12 years later, one of my sister's friends was up swimming in that exact location. And he was 16, a great athlete, much stronger, obviously, than I would have been at six. He fell into that river, same spot, and he drowned. No one was there to remind him to hold on to the pole. So those lessons really sink in in terms of the messaging. And as you know, as a teacher, Adi, it's, it's about those stories that really add the substance to it. So as leaders, you want to share the stories and then the key takeaway, the key punchline, that people remember the story, even if they kind of view the punchline as a, a nice to remember. And how true is that analogy? I mean, that was a real life story, but yet it, it coincides with what a lot of organizations are facing today with COVID-19. I mean, here they were, economies on the uprise, biggest gains in, you know, in history, in the stock market. And then all of a sudden, so many of these organizations fell into their own river and now are struggling or treading water just, just to survive. Talk about, you know, the importance of when crisis hits, how important it is as an organizational leader to really keep your emotions in check and to hold on to that fishing pole. How do they find that fishing pole to hold on to when everything around them feels like it's collapsing in? So many of your viewers view this as the worst crisis they've ever seen. I've seen one that was much worse for high tech 2001 and uh, the high tech industry on average stock dropped by 80%, 80%. We went the most valuable company in the world at Cisco to people questioning, could I do my job? And what you learned at that time, and I literally would sit up on the roof of the house and look out at the valley and wonder, could I lead the company through this? You naturally question, are you the right person? You question, how come I didn't see it ahead of time? How could I have missed this? It doesn't help that you saw it before your counterparts or that you executed through it better. How come you couldn't have protected your employees from this? And it's the understanding of once you've been through this, the next time isn't easy, but it's easier. And this is my sixth financial crisis. And so navigating through it is pretty predictable. It's like having a doctor operate on you. If you have a real serious heart surgery, you want the doctor who's done that a thousand times, not somebody who's doing it for the first time, even though they might be very talented. And then it's sharing with others, how do you navigate through this? And it's helping them connect the dots on how they see. And you can't say don't panic because first that usually offends people. What you've got to say is you just need to be calm. As you get to know me, Matt and Adi, when I am really worried about something, I talk unbelievably slowly, very focused on what we're going to do. How do we navigate through this? How do we determine how many people will get laid off? Here's what we look like when we come out. And here's how we're going to make a difference. Normally, I'm off the walls, going an idea a minute in terms of the balance and the approach. And so you have to, as a leader, adjust your style to your team based on your experience with them, outline a clear vision of how you got there, what you're going to do to fix it, what we look like when we come out. Be transparent. Don't hide. If you don't know, just tell people you don't know. Hard to do for a young leader. And going back to the same theme of last week, these leaders have never been through this. Or if they were, they were much further down in the organization. So all of them are learned to doing with rapids for the first time. Might have read about them. Great training at schools like IU and business school. But they're doing it for the first time. And you will panic initially. You'll feel that hollowness in your stomach like, oh, my gosh, 
I hope I make the right decision here. I know, unfortunately, I'm going to impact people's lives sometimes for a very negative approach if you have to lay them off. How do you deal with this and then position your company, your state, your country for the recovery as you go forward? John, in one chapter, you talk about the importance of effective communications and getting your message out. And I can only imagine that's especially important in a crisis situation. You have this quote, you say, you're not as good as people think you are when things are going well, but you're not as bad as people think you are when there's a downturn or setback. What can leaders do to influence that balance of perspective and how they're portrayed in the media, especially during a crisis? Well, uh, first is you're at the mercy of the media in many ways, but you need to take a step back and don't become a victim. You've got to control your own destiny. It's a lot easier to do with social media where, you know, I'm, I'm followed by about 245,000 people on LinkedIn and I get my messages out. I don't allow other people to wrap them for me. I then use social media to be the springboard for the traditional media and how do I drive key points through. I also build relationships ahead of time, just like you do with government leaders before there's a problem. So when you're in a problem, people tend to trust you. That trust transference we talked about earlier in terms of the approach. And then always to listen to your critics. Every critic, there's there's an element of truth in terms of the balance and you want to listen for it. But then you very clearly outline where you're going to go. You get your team together as one team. Here's what we're going to do. Here's each of those five platforms that we're going to run for crisis recovery. The head of sales has this one. Finance leader has this one. Head of customer services has this one, et cetera. And here's how we come through it. And then you've got to have a balance of striking a dream that is achievable, that people will believe in. They want that North Star. And then you look at them in the eyes and you bring them with you. And you celebrate the successes no matter how how small they are along the way. And you deal with the challenges and you remind people that it's going to be, if you're lucky, three steps forward, two back, <laughs> three steps forward, two back. And you're going to get knocked down at least one or two more times. Then you tell them the story and you're there when they need you the most. Now, last week you got into, you know, what goes into a great playbook, like yes. things that you follow. And before we get into what organizations need to have into their economic, you know, playbook and how they're going to reenter, one thing that you said in, in this chapter uh, about crisis is that a lot of organizational leaders will take the outside circumstances that are out of their control and they'll take it personally, like they did something wrong and they'll overreact out of that place of, of emotion thinking, well, I... I feel like I need to do something more and really kind of make poor decisions based on, you know, trying to control it. So where, or how can leaders, you know, take a healthy uh, perspective or healthy look at what's happening outside and out of their control, but then also protect themselves and protect their team from not having to make um, moves that are unnecessary? It's a tough balance, Matt. There isn't a complete right or wrong. Uh, I think you've got to deal with the world quickly the way it is. Uh, You make your moves very quickly in terms of your expense balance, your free cash flow, how you interface to employees, customers. You paint the picture of where you're going to go, which is a regular evolutionary process, and then you show steps along the way to get there. You've got to avoid the image, especially as a leader, you're not a victim. If you're a victim, your whole company won't follow you. They'll lose trust in you. You've got to be realistic on the challenges and how severe they are and the pain that's probably going to come with this. You strike that balance of showing a little bit of your human feralty, uh, and you do it by interfacing to your customers and your employees even more than than at other times. 
Uh, and if you make mistakes, you correct them quickly in terms of the direction. But this is where you almost have to be fearless. Uh, and the first time through, I was scared to death. By the second time, I had it. And so while I wish I would avoid challenges, once I'm there, uh, I love to compete. I love to paint the picture of what we look like. I love to pull organizations together through the challenges as we move forward to really make a difference on it. And we will come through. And if you look at my teams and we look at each other and I, we are going to do it as a team. And we know we're vulnerable, but we honestly believe we're unbeatable. We really do. And it isn't about surviving. I mean, who wants to survive? You, you want to paint the picture of why we can be a great company as we come out of it, how it's going to be stronger, how you share this with society and with the families, how you share the company's success with your employees and your customers, and how you deal with problems together as one family, which makes you almost unbeatable. John, I, uh, one of the things we talk a lot about at the Kelly School is we talk about three characteristics mm-hmm. that our students have in common, and we always say our alums have in common. Obviously, they came through our program. And these are the talent to succeed, the humility to grow, and the tenacity to persevere. And let me say, you illustrate these aspects very, very clearly, talent and humility and tenacity. I wonder if you might speak to how important those things are to leaders. I think they're extremely important. And it's important to understand your strength and your leaders. But it's much like a great basketball coach, of which we've had some very good ones at IU, Uh, you can be a great coach, but if you haven't got a number of really top players who fit into your style of ball, you're not going to win games. And so it's about having the talent to succeed. And so when I look at my startups, the first thing I do is help them build talent. And boy, we recruit the best and the brightest. You know, in one one company that may shock you that you'd never even heard of, a company called ASAP out of New York City. It's a startup and artificial intelligence, customer experience level. And they were in stealth mode until just a month ago. Yet they had 55 PhDs of artificial intelligence. You could go against Google, Facebook, Amazon, any of them. They got the entire MIT graduating class of last year, all four of them uh, on it. And so talent to succeed. And this is industries as every company becomes a technology company, whether you're in manufacturing or healthcare or government, uh, it is about talent and then getting them to play. Humility is important. I, I like what you're teaching because Heidi, it's the, it's the best. Uh, there have been some very good examples of humility out in the West Coast. Uh, you know, HP built a culture of that uh, through many, many generations of leaders. There are others that candidly didn't have much humility. And I think it comes, it bites them in the end uh, because that says about your culture of your company and your direction. But I could wish I could tell you that the people who are arrogant aren't going to re- succeed. That's not necessarily true. Uh, but it does have to know with what your culture is in your company. And do you expect people who are humble? Uh, a Walmart being a great example. I've watched seven generations of leaders there. And what the Walton family is building to Walmart, and I was on their board, is that humility. Lee Scott as a key example. Doug McMillan, amazingly humble in terms of the direction. Perseverance or stubbornness, uh, I have a little bit of both. My wife would probably say too much in a second. Uh, but boy, once there's a goal, and I believe it's attainable, uh, I will move heaven and earth to get there. I will never do anything knowingly that isn't fair. Uh, I would never do something to a competitor that I'd have a problem if they did it to me uh, on it. But the ability to paint that vision and that I'd execute them. And I ought to execute them because I am better prepared in every meeting. 
I build better teams. I get the market transitions right. You compete against market transitions technology, never against companies. If you're competing against companies, you're looking at the rearview mission mirror as you go forward. I think those are three good ones. I like humility as part of the culture, but you'll find, unfortunately, there are a number of leaders who are overconfident and uh, uh, don't necessarily treat people like you or customers like you you believe they should be treated. That doesn't mean they won't win, uh, but it is what culture you want as a company. So as we have organizational leaders who are hungry to get back and get back into the economy, get their businesses open, you know, there is going to be a fine balance of, you know, doing too much too quickly and doing not enough uh, and, you know, and kind of getting left behind. And that's where it comes into having that effective strategy or, or the playbook, as you mentioned. And I know last week you started mentioning and talking about key elements and what makes a successful playbook. But given, you know, where we're at in our economy and given the circumstances, what do organizational leaders need to make sure that they have in their strategy and in their playbook as they start to look toward reopening and re-entering the market? So the first part of it is exactly the foundation built last week. And then the second part of it is how do you break away as you come through this? You have to complete the foundational building. You've got to have the five to seven major things you're going to do to get through the crisis. You've got to build the trust of your customers, your employees, your shareholders, the media, your partners as you go through this. You've got to have regularly updated them so they believe in your vision. And then you paint the picture of what you're going to look like as you come out. You make the adjustments to your expenses. Even my companies, they're growing at 300% growth. And I have several of them that are doing that now. We have put a pause on hiring and a pause on expenses till we realize the depth and breadth. Then as you begin to see the light at the end of the tunnel or the light at the end of the crisis, and sometimes it'll occur when you think, but mainly just use a sliding scale, either move it forward or backwards. You then have to transition your company to what you look like, not just a vision of when you come out, but how are you going to get there? And then for those of the organizations that have the courage to leave and are willing to take the risk, because everybody says, I have the courage to leave, but are you willing to take the risk? Because if you're wrong, you could crash your company in the process and the people's jobs. You outline how you're going to break away as you come out of this. And you don't do it by suddenly stepping on the gas pedal and spending money. You do it by spreading yourself a little bit thinner. You pick a couple of the areas that will be your key takeaways as you emerge out. You continue to do what you were doing well before if it was working. And then you say, here's what I'm going to do differently. And then you have the courage to say, how am I going to outgrow my peers, play the chess game out to the end. And now what are the five to seven things you're going to do to lead after the crisis? And as you come forward, and that's the most fun part of all, because once you've been through it, once you develop that inner confidence that you can handle dyslexia, you can handle watching what happened to West Virginia, and yet we can perhaps change it this next time. You can see what happened to Boston 128 when the mini computer industry didn't change and Silicon Valley, which was a bunch of unique people out in California, we did not have much respect for. They beat us because we kept doing the right thing too long in an industry. But once you've learned how to do that, then all of a sudden you can really make a difference. And I'll keep pushing it back. As you do it, I think the leader's job for him or for her uh, is to build a culture as you go through it but have the courage to really go for it as you turn this back up. I believe we're set for a major upturn. I think the country has a chance to merge out of this even stronger, but I think it will be very painful for the next couple of quarters uh, before we slowly start to get it better. 
Again, John Chambers, former CEO of Cisco Systems, author of Connecting the Dots, Lessons for Leadership in a Startup World, available anywhere books are for sale. He's also a Kelly School of Business MBA alum and the current founder and CEO of JC2 Ventures. John, we are so honored that you took the time to spend with us here on the ROI podcast. Matt, it was a pleasure. Adi, thank you very much. It's great to be back at IU, even if it's virtual. This has been another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, joined by the Dean of Kelly School, Idi Kesner. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.